0: Be the best rugby coach you can be. Welcome to Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast with Head Coach Dan Cottrell, where you learn hints and tips from
1: the rugby coaching community. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Cottrell, Head Coach at Rugby Coach Weekly, and in uh, the podcast today, I'm very happy to welcome along Rob Gray. So welcome to the podcast, Rob.
0: Thanks, Dan, and thanks for having me. It's my pleasure.
1: Well, we've been trying to catch up for a little while, uh, probably a couple of years now, and so I'm excited I actually got you online, and particularly because I've managed to understand a little bit more about some of the subjects we're going to delve into. So a little bit of an introduction. Rob is Professor of Human Systems Engineering at Arizona State University, uh, but I will first and foremost like to add he's also Canadian. So, before I make any uh, poor u s references to his lineage, he is Canadian in the coaching world. He's better known for the Perception and action podcast. I will ask him to say a little bit more about this in a moment in the main in the meantime, the main aim of this chat is to explore what our training might look like, and to do this, I will be asking Rob about ecological dynamical systems. so before we delve into the science. Uh, I want to know a little bit more about your own sporting allegiances. So I'm as, I'm assuming they have a bit of a Canadian bias, but uh, tell us a bit about um, the sports you love and you follow.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, I, of course, growing up Canadian, I play ice hockey was the main sport I played and, you know, I, I, Live, my family lived and died by the Toronto Maple Leafs. You know, Saturday night hockey, <laughs> hockey night in Canada is a is a, So, um, over the years, as I have moved, you know, I moved to the U.S. I kind of lost a little bit. It's hard to be a big hockey fan in Arizona. We do have a team, <laughs> but you kind of lose it. So, um, over the years, I kind of baseball has become my main uh, interest. Is so, still so the Toronto allegiance to the Toronto Blue Jays. My probably my favorite sports team overall. Um, I, I enjoy that both. I enjoy the sport, but I've also kind of, I've done a lot of research in it, and I work in it a lot. So that's one of the one main ones I like. Um, I also, saw- so, soccer was the summer sport when I was a kid in Canada too. There was no uh, basketball or fo- American football or anything like that. So, um, but yeah, baseball is the, the biggest one I'm kind of into now um, myself. Yeah,
1: and and so in those terms, do you get a chance to go out and? Do a bit of coaching as well, as well as um, discussing skill acquisition?
0: I do. I do a fair amount of consulting now. Um, I would say, you know, majority of what I do is more coach education and, you know, help working with coaches to help with practice design um i do, you know i think my strength i always say helping coaches make them look good is probably better than coaching myself <laughs> um i don't know if i have the the best personality for being a good motivator and stuff that the you know really good coaches are so um i do a bit of behind the scenes occasionally i get involved with individual athletes for you know you know when there's kind of a technical issue they you want to work to change like a baseball pitcher uh, the way they're throwing might cause injury Uh, I'll I'll get in there and and work with the individual athlete. But as I said, it's mostly with coaches now that I work with.
1: Which sort of leads me to a question which is a little bit off script. So uh, be prepared for this one. (laughs) No
0: problem.
1: So we're talking about um, coaching, um, maybe coaching coaches or coaching players. And you mentioned about motivation in that. Um, How much do you think that motivation plays in actually helping the athlete improve uh, as opposed to just giving them the right sort of practice design?
0: I think it's really important. I think it's, a, uh, you know, it's setting the kind of right uh, expectations. And one of the particular things I, could, I guess I could focus on related to the the methods we're going to talk about today is um, giving them a, the motivation to uh, try and, and challenge themselves. You know, one of the keys to a lot of the methods in the approaches that I like is uh, allowing for failure, probably a higher rate of failure than a lot of really good athletes are are used to. Um, So that practice, you know, setting this kind of expectation and motivating you to really push yourself as opposed to just trying to look good, like you're doing everything perfect, like you're being scouted or something. Um, I, I think it's a really important thing for coaches to kind of um, set that environment for the athletes.
1: And that's something which I've been looking at uh, in particular um, about the difference between performance and learning because mm-hmm. often coaches will reflect on a training session and reflect that this we've made fewer mistakes than we normally make. So I feel that our performance has improved. So that must be a difficulty from a, a coach's point of view to naturally say, Actually, we have made mistakes, and that's good.
0: Yeah, I think so. And I think an important point with that is I think to recognize there's different goals for different practice sessions. Like mean, sometimes we might, we, we, for example, if it's the really close to a big competition, maybe we do want to focus on performance, like have really low variability conditions and try to get everything looking really good. Because really, the goal is to make people confident and kind of pressure proof and things. Whereas more in the off season, that's when we want things to get really messy and chaotic and variable. So we, we should expect to see less kind of a success and more people challenging, trying things and exploring. And so I think you're right. It, it is kind of change your mindset as a coach, what what you want to see based on what the goal of the practice activity was.
1: Which makes a lot of sense because I think sometimes coaches forget that there is an end in mind, which can be that they've got to play the match on the Saturday or the Sunday. Mm -hmm. And um, if you are doing something which is quite complicated with a large amount of failure the the session beforehand, that might actually work against you.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think it's probably the wrong time to really (laughs) – push someone to try something really different and yeah so you have to keep definitely keep that mind kind of you know i think the periodization of skill training is becoming more just like we periodize physical training is becoming more and more a kind of thing people are thinking about and 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 trying to you know we still have to understand a lot and it really depends on the sport um how you do that but i think it's a really important issue
1: okay so let's delve into some of the questions that um um in particular i wanted to explore so I'm extremely conscious that I can easily skip over the science and get to the practice but I might be missing the point of why my training sessions might change so is a little bit of knowledge dangerous I think it can be in
0: some ways I think um, so what what I think is a you know I I think coaches especially been doing it for a while have you know we call it experiential knowledge like knowledge gained from Essentially trying doing little experiments yourself and practice, learning what works with different athletes and 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 not and so much of that is it's really powerful knowledge. And what I try to do is I think connecting it with the more empirical and theoretical side of things, I think just makes everything strong. And I'm not arguing you replace one with the other. I think mm-hmm. they can be very complementary. Um a little knowledge I think can be dangerous because I think if you don't really understand you see something and you don't really understand the purpose of it. You know, not that it's going to hurt, but it's probably not going to be as effective as it could be. Um, like the, the example I always give is in soccer. I've watched. There's lots of soccer teams out here, and a lot of people have heard about things like small-sided games or something. They get a little whiff of something, and then you watch them and they implement it. And I set my stopwatch, and 20 seconds later, they're yelling uh, instructions about where people should be. Like so, basically. You're, what happened there is you don't understand what the purpose of small side game is. So you've completely negated its possibility of having a benefit. Um, so I think sometimes people, if we don't quite understand what, what the purpose of it and what it's trying to achieve, then you're not going to get anything out of it uh, at the worst. And likely you're going to move away from ever trying that again. So I, I think it can be dangerous in that way.
1: Which is why perhaps um, some of the things we're going to talk about might be a little bit scary, because obviously it's quite complex um, skill acquisition, Mm -hmm. and there's lots of theories and practices around that, Um, so how long do you think um, a coach needs to be studying it and experimenting with something before they become enough of an expert to actually be making sense and obviously that depends but I'm suggesting it's not going to happen after just what listening to one superb obviously podcast with you and me but uh, (laughs) in in, in terms of there, there must be some amount of work you must do before you become at least competent
0: yeah, for I'm um, sure you know, it's 10,000 hours, right? That's the answer I'm supposed to <laughs> we say. We still no. believe that. <laughs> no, 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 okay, okay. Um, no, yeah, definitely. I think I think it's like anything, it, it takes practice of learning. What kind of, like if you, for example, well, I'm sure we'll talk about constraint, using constraints to that approach. It takes a while, I think, to understand which ones will work. And I think it, it's a skill you continually to develop. But I think it's, um, I think it really depends on your start, where you start, I think, a lot of coaches have been doing a lot of these things already. It's just di- different words they use, and mm. and so in that case, maybe you can pick it up r- really quickly. Um, but of others, I think it's it, it's a real uh, and, and that's kind of a mi- misnomer about some of it that it's really totally hands off coaching when it's really not. It's it's still requires a lot of skill and learning how to do it effectively, knowing when to for, for a jump in and when things aren't going the way you want. For example, is a really challenging issue. I've been talking with a lot of coaches about lately
1: so my reading around this has certainly uh, thrown out what well, uh, not thrown out is brought into sharp relief that probably some of the things that I'm doing or have done fit into this this type of coaching and it has been effective, yet probably I've not known why it's been effective or um, I've guessed at it and it maybe tightens up a few things. Of course, everything can be tightened up all the, all the time. So let's um, get a bit of knowledge under our belts then and see if some of us are doing some of these things already or maybe we need to change. So um, let's start with perception action coupling. What does that okay. mean?
0: Yeah. So that's an idea that comes from, mostly from James Gibson, um, this ecological psychology. Um, his idea that uh, is that perhaps perception and action are inherently coupled together. They're linked together such that you cannot really break them apart right there. So we perceived, I perceive to act, you know, I perceive the distance of my cup on my table so I can reach it. I act to perceive, you know, I, I might move my head around to get a better view of, of where it is. Um, so these two things are linked and, we, you know, they only can be understand, understood in how they work together, right? Um, and so the biggest implication for, you know, coaching is we want to try to, as much as we can, avoid breaking them apart, right? Because when you're breaking them apart, you're just creating a, a totally different situation, right? I, they, you know, the two examples I would give is, you know sometimes a lot of times we act without the perceiving part so the classic example is soccer dribbling around cones right we're creating the action of moving left to right with the ball we've taken away all the perception the, the natural perception that occurs right you do in a soccer game you don't go left because you see orange <laughs> right <laughs> i go left because you go right right and the, so the the actions we make are driven driven by the perceptual information we pick up all the time, right? And the same is true um, on the other side. When we just ask someone to perceive something without acting, it just totally changes this the situation. So, so the idea of perception action coupling is that. How we act depends on the the information we get, and how the information we get depends on how we act. So, there two things are are stuck together, um, in 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 coupled is the word that um, kind of Gibson gave for that.
1: So, picking up on that, then um, my sense is that um, sometimes people say, "Well, that means that you never, never, ever dribble around cones," but there must be some benefits of doing that not maybe the benefits we perceive is that right to say um
0: you know i, I personally develop there, this there's very little benefit i think you can achieve a lot of the same things by keeping it more you know the alternative a lot of people like to use is playing tag with with kids right so i try, have two kids running one trying to tag the other while they're controlling the ball um, so you're you're having them move and practice ball handling but the reason I'm moving left is because the information from you, another person, an opponent. So I, I really think there's a lot of different ways we can try to achieve the same thing and keeping it, keeping it coupled where you have the real information there. Um the the kind of the one of the ideas that, you know, I tried to move away from and I don't we don't really like in kind of the ecological approach is the idea that you have to train technique separately, then pl- actually plug it into the game, right? Um, that's kind of the very traditional view. I have to teach you for how to dribble before I can actually let you play soccer. Um, that, that kind of view. So, so you know, I, maybe there's some times that, that doing the very isolated uh, decouple training might be useful. But for the most part, I like to try to avoid it as much as I can.
1: So given that, uh, obviously in lockdown, we have very rarely be able to be outside uh, with more than maybe yourself and so somebody could go and uh, kick a football against a wall and and obviously it rebounds and they kick it back and so on now is there is some obviously some health and mental benefits from being outside and kicking a ball but in Mm -hmm. terms of skill acquisition are you are you getting much benefit from that or is is the payoff very small
0: um. Yeah, I think it's unfortunately. I, I would love to have a different answer, but you know, I think in especially in team sports, there's very little, quote unquote, skill training. I think you can do because it's a skill that depends on uh, to having teammates and opponents around. Um, you know, hitting a ball, being learning to control a ball. Um, you know, when you kick a ball off the wall and it comes back to you, obviously you're getting information about the ball flight. That's that's similar to what you get in the game. So there's something there. Um, what I what I would kind of I like to distinguish a lot of is is develop the distinction between developing capacity and developing skill. So, um, when an athlete gets more capacity, more strength, more speed, um, more flexibility, things you, that you can you can usually we think more about in terms of strength and conditioning training. I the the when you put them back into skill training, they just have more options available. It creates more opportunities word we like to use is affordances, right? Opportunities for action. If I can run faster, I can go through smaller gaps and things like that. So I think if we're isolated alone as an athlete, maybe the more the capacity training is done, you know, and I, I know like, like you're saying this situation right now, I wish I could give a different answer and say there's a simple <laughs> way, but in reality, you know, it, it is very, very difficult to do any kind of meaningful skill training.
1: So um, we we think of um, some of the great basketball players um, like Michael Jordan and Stephen Curry now, and there has been a video out there of Stephen Curry hitting an enormous number of consecutive three-point shots. Now, to, for, all the, in, for him to be able to do that, I know in an isolated situation, how has he got there? Um, is it because he's been able just to throw the ball at the hoop without pressure? hundreds of thousands of times or is it because actually there has been something else which has been happening which has got him to that stage
0: yeah so i think there's a few points there that yeah that was a really interesting example because both kind of sides of the <laughs> debate <laughs> shouted that as evidence on theres, which is quite a funny the same piece <laughs> of video um i think a couple points i would, you know so the idea i think we've got to remember is to kind of the the practice needs to reflect kind of the variability and and the chaotic nature of the sport it's trying to to, to teach. Like so, for example, teaching uh, training running skill and sprinting is very different than training running skill in football, American football. One of them's low variability, <laughs> very low variability. One's very high. You don't ever run in a straight line fifty yards in in football. So, so I would say you know basketball that an open jump shot is a situation that happens in a game, right? So it's, it is an actual one. I think probably people spend a bit too much time training on it. So you do want to practice that it is representative of the, of the actual game. The other thing I would point out is if you, there's a follow up article that he wrote in ESPN where he talks about that video. And he said, mm-hmm. that's actually what he does just before the game to kind of get just like we were talking about, right before the game when we're not really focused on skill development just trying to feel confident he said when he when he practices in the in practice he hardly ever takes the same shot more than one or two times in a row <laughs> he's always getting at different passes different directions different locations so i think it's a little bit misleading but it also partially reflects what goes on in basketball right
1: well of course that's um yeah. it's very typical of uh twitter to uh, find <laughs> us, one small piece of information and make it the uh, make it the only thing. It's like all no. the quotes we get <laughs> that people say, uh, "Well, Einstein said this, so therefore that's true." And often, Einstein never said it in the first place. <laughs> Twitter is misleading. No, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah. We still we still find ourselves still find ourselves drawn to it in a very
0: um, yeah,
1: uh, like uh, the butterfly to the light, isn't it? Mm-hmm, for sure. Uh, yeah. Is it the is it the butterfly or is certainly the some moth, insect? The moth to the, phone moth to the light. <laughs> yes, there they were. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So maybe the butterfly to light like could be another Twitter. And, <laughs> I like that one to me. Yeah, yeah. but it, yeah, it doesn't doesn't work. But it sounds <laughs> sounds sounds better. <laughs> sounds good. Yeah. So I'm now we've got a little bit of knowledge um, mm-hmm. about this, and inevitably we're we're creating perhaps a false dichotomy by setting one approach against another. But what we, the intention is not to do that. So I'm I'm a coach, and I've now got a little bit of knowledge that I want to create a bit more uh, perception-action coupling because mm-hmm. the benefits of that should should uh, should improve my players. So I just want to step back. What is the? It sounds like I'm creating uh, an argument here, but I'm not. What is the proof mm-hmm. that perception-action coupling is more effective than uh, going around cones? Though, though it sounds obvious. Mm-hmm how can we measure that that is a more effective way?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. There's, there's kind of two lines of uh, things I would point to. One is the point that when we decouple, there's a lot of evidence we do things very differently. Um, so we know, for example, the, the, it, even neuroscience shows us um, there's kind of two streams in our brain. When, and when I perceive to give you a verbal conscience answer, I give it; it goes to a different area in my brain than when I perceive to actually move and act. So, if I decouple perception and just ask you what you would do in, the, in a play by watching a video, you're actually using different brain areas. Um, and then there's um, a bunch of things like uh, more active things. Like uh, there's some great work by uh, uh, researcher Matt Dix, who I've had on my podcast. He's shown that if you ask a goalkeeper to watch the run up of a penalty kicker. Uh, In penalty kicks, where they look totally changes depending on whether they actually say, just ask them to say, I would dive left versus actually diving left. So, um, and other things, you know, there's a bunch of, you know, when you ask an athlete to practice a volleyball serve, you say, we're just going to practice the ball toss part instead of having you jump up and hit it. The ball toss is completely different (laughs) as soon as you ask them to, they don't have to hit. So, when you change the requirements, of the act you totally change that they do that, so so that's kind of the, the this idea that you know, if we're going to make things different, the likelihood it's going to be able to transfer to the actual skill is probably going to be a lot less because we know, um, in terms of direct evidence, I don't know of any. You know, I've got a collection on my website where I've collected research that has pers- compared, um, not so much decoupled ones, but um. You know, uh, training where we kind of focus on one particular technique versus alternatives like constraints that approach in differential learning. And there has been, I think there's about eight or nine studies now, and, and I think the majority of them is showing you get better performance outcomes in the end when you don't do this kind of very technically focused training. So those are, but you're, you're right. It definitely, you know, it's something that needs to be investigated more for sure. More evidence. Yeah.
1: And always we should be investigating whatever we're doing all the time anyway. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just should be yeah. a natural, we shouldn't just sign it off. Yeah. Uh, we should uh, move on. So there's a couple of things you said in there. Uh, the first one is I was interested by the fact that uh, in more and more, and more sports, we're using video analysis and we're asking players to reflect on what's happened in, in a situation Now, it it strikes me from what you've just said is that uh, when a player watches themselves and you're asked what they saw, they're not actually going to really give you um, an effective answer because what they saw in the moment is not what they're saying uh, they're verbalizing. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, for sure um the uh yeah you know i i kind of say i have a healthy distrust of athletes you know their retrospective recall of what they actually did yeah. <laughs> when they tell yeah. you like that there's also you know the case that it's just different information you know if you want to, if i could give you the terminology is you know when i'm in the moment i get egocentric view i, I see things from my viewpoint mm-hmm. when i watch a video and i can see myself that's totally different information now i have myself in the scene Um, I I am getting different things. So it doesn't mean that those can't be used effectively, but I think, um, you know, you are right. Assuming that the careful thing is we don't want to assume that's what's actually going on in the actual moment. I think you're right. Um, what the athlete says afterwards, I think it can be a useful thing to kind of guide the the training and, and reflection and things. But the idea that that's what's actually happening, I think is misleading in a lot of cases.
1: Which sort of brings me on to feedback then because you will be asking a question um to an athlete after they've done something and they, the way that they verbalize it, of course, um different athletes will have different levels of intelligence to be able to put things into words. Mm-hmm. Um yet they may also their recall might actually be completely fuzzy or wrong mm-hmm. because as you said, in the moment they've made a decision and th- there's no real conscious thought. Oh, I have moved my feet here. I have put my elbow here, and I follow through in this way. It's just happened.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So uh, I'm I'm perhaps worried that the feedback we're asking for them from them is not really going to help them, or there will be some benefits from it, but we are maybe overplaying those benefits.
0: Yeah, I think we just have to think about. Um, in in the approach, kind of the ecological approach we keep hinting at is is, um, (laughs) the, the, uh, (laughs) the, the, the idea is we could still do those things, but we're trying to do, the goal is very different. We're not trying to build up knowledge in the athlete's head. Like, so they remember, oh, this play, when that happens, I do this. What the purpose of questioning and feedback is more to guide their attention the next time, you know, maybe you should be looking there um for just making that decision and so uh, the one of the big things we kind of emphasize is not having really when you pose a question don't have get that verbal answer get them to show you get them to act um, based on what you're kind of questioning
1: right okay and that makes a lot of makes a lot of sense because uh what uh, what you might say is not not what you might be able to achieve i mean um just um, you, you may think you'll be able to hit the ball in a certain way, but you'll you've never in the month of Sundays been able to hit it in that certain way, despite <laughs> the true. fact that you think you can do. <laughs> yeah. So um, obviously we're we're hinting at it, and um, so maybe this question will help people who don't necessarily know so much about it get a clearer idea. So if we want to make some simple improvements as a coach in a training session. Um, can you give me examples of how uh, the ecological dynamical approach will help a coach uh, improve skill acquisition?
0: Yeah, so I guess the the biggest departure from kind of the traditional way of coaching is moving of the way, away from the idea that there's one or a small number of correct ways to do something that the coach knows Right. And it's the coach's job to give you the athlete the technique. And that's kind of the old traditional way of coaching. That's the way, you know, when I learned tennis, right, <laughs> you, you hold your racket like this and you position your body like that. Um, the coach knows the correct solution. They're trying to give it through you. And the way that we develop the skill is through repetition. We keep repeating. You keep trying to repeat it and, you, and the coach keeps correcting you. No, your elbow was too high. Um, the alternative, you know, that the departure for the ecological approach is there's no one correct technique. Um, the, the technique that's going to be effective depends on the individual. It needs to be adaptable to the different environmental conditions. So if we start from that point, the, um, the idea of the coach is more to help guide the athlete's search for finding an adaptable, effective solution rather than giving them the, the, the you know, quote unquote, correct technique um so i think when you start with that different view it just opens up a lot of different avenues for for coaching and and less of the focus on technique you know we can get right into you know decision making kind of activities and coupled things r- right away for sure yeah.
1: so uh, let's say someone arrives for uh, their first tennis lesson mm-hmm. um you obviously have to give them some guidance on holding the racket uh, because otherwise they may hold it in their wrong hand or they might just hold it with mm-hmm. two fingers. And some of those things are never going to be effective. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm being extreme, but there must be a certain amount of, dare I use the word, scaffolding that the coach has to use before the the player can start to discover their their best approach.
0: Yeah, no, I, that, that's a very good point. And I think it's a, it's kind of sometimes misunderstood. You know, in the language we talk about it, those are constraints. You know, the coach needs to, well, verbally, you know, or by demonstration or something that like, gives you kind of these basic constraints. You know, some of them are, you're right, uh, because they're never going to work another way. Some of them are rule, like in volleyball, for example, it's illegal to hit shots a certain way, even if it works, yes. right? You can't have your hands apart and double hit it. So you need to give kind of the athlete the constraints of, of what they're going to have to work in. Um, and so, but in general, those tend to be really just kind of very basic things. Um, and then after that, you kind of let it go from there and and, and do let the athlete you know that another term we like to use, self-organize, right? Mm. Let them, the, the pat, so what we do, what don't want to try to, what we want to try to avoid is Prescribing and 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 telling them oh going starting with you need to hold the racket this way to going you need to swing this way you need your your arms this far apart you need your racket this high so you're telling them the whole movement solution essentially.
1: Now what I'm thinking there is um, in self self organization and discovery, um, you have a limited time with an athlete and certainly a coach with maybe a larger group of, say, maybe 10, 15 soccer players, for example, they come along, and um, all this this sort of let, letting them discover um, means that by the end of it, uh, the players are, haven't really achieved much because it's very difficult to, to get them to have some success. So I'm, I'm guessing really that your rules and constraints – give them more opportunities to practice effectively. Uh, but I would be, I would think that maybe some of this sounds quite inefficient.
0: In general. Yeah. I think that's a very fair point. And it's kind of a practical issue. I, I recognize that, I and mean, then people, you know, it's, it's a more, you know, longer playing the long game, essentially in terms of learning, um, but the idea is you know so a tennis is a great example you know, it, 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 one of the things, there's things you can do with the constraints to kind of help people find it a bit quicker mm. and tennis is a great example is is scaling the equipment so if you have a kid show up if you give them an adult racket and an adult ball yes if you tra- let them try to figure it out on their own they're gonna be lucky to hit the ball back over the net in an hour and it's gonna look awful. If you get, there's re- tons of ni- really nice research by like uh, Tim Buzzard at AIS in Australia showing mm. if you give them a smaller racket and a lower compression ball, then they find the the stroke you were looking for much quicker and much easier. So, um, so the key is kind of coming up with constraints that you know help simplify the task down, scale it down in terms of the speed, number of players. So 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 giving the athlete the chance to. Uh, find uh, the, the solution a bit quicker and and struggle. And it, and it is kind of, it's this trade-off, right? The yes, if you really want them to look good fast, just telling them what to do, yeah. right? Yeah. The, but, the performance you know, versus learning idea. Yeah, exactly. Like we were talking about, you know, that will work. Yeah, they'll look great then, but then you're going to get mad about them not being creative later on. Uh, where did that, where did you think that was going to come from? Um, or being bad at decision-making when you didn't let them make any decisions. Um, you know, so it's kind of a, you're right. It is a trade, but I do recognize, you know, the, the pressure on coaches and, and things, you know, I've had coaches tell me that parents yell at them for, what are we paying you for? You're just, you don't <laughs> look like you're doing anything at all. So, you know, it it is a very different way to look at things.
1: Okay, well, that leads me quite nicely into my next question. So, we got a sense of uh, the ecological dynamical approach. Um, mm-hmm. Now, how much do the players, well, and we could also say parents, need to know why you're using this approach, given the level of language and understanding we have to invest as coaches to understand what we're doing.
0: Yeah, you know, I think it's it's important, like any with any kind of practice thing, um, especially the players having buy-in, and and I think you know. Um, you know the the word I used before uh, affordances. You know I think it's good. You know to explain the players a little bit what this activity is trying to afford. Um, you know so like a small sided game. Um, you know we're trying to we're trying that. You know the coach saying that you know the purpose of the activity is we want to you know get better at moving the ball more or, or things like that. So so I think having a general idea of what the purpose of a practice is good. Um, you know I think part of the ecological approach is that practice is more, you know, the word we use is co-adaptive. So the athlete has a big role in, in giving you feedback and uh, telling you what's working and what's not for them instead of, again, the coach being the instructor with the right answer. Um, parents, I don't know, <laughs> a, um, you know, I guess you have to do, you, it would probably be good to kind of explain the overall, um, you know, Objective, I think, of of the way that you coach a little bit at the start would probably be useful because most people are very used to the traditional way, and it, it just seems very unusual to them at first.
1: I like the term you used. Uh, you've got to see the long game in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not uh, we're not going to create certain things in a very short space of time. It's going to take time to to be there. I mean, one of the things um, I'm thinking about is that uh, previously I've said this is what I think it's going to look like by the end of the season. So don't, don't expect it to happen now, but it may not look like that. It very much depends on uh, how the players react and you have to go at, the, at their speed. I mean, that's, I can say that now after coming close to maybe 30 years coaching, you can have the confidence to say that. But I think novice coaches may find that um, quite a challenge. But you know, we have to help them understand that um, it doesn't, doesn't happen so quickly.
0: For sure. Yeah, that, that's a great point, Dan. I think we all, you know, there's this movement towards having, always having clear learning objectives and measurables <laughs> and it doesn't fit well with some of these, you know, that, you know, I like to say, you know, we, it's funny in skill and training, you know, there's this undeniable fact, like if you want to get good at something, you have to practice that thing a lot. <laughs> <laughs> we seem to be constantly in efforts to try to deny that fact of nature. How can I shortcut learning how to play soccer without playing soccer, right? It's like, it's just, we can constantly want a, a shortcut of a system. So um, it, it is, right? It's going to take a while for, for some of these things to show up. And sometimes the word, if people listening have heard this, the, the, sometimes a word you hear associated with this is l- learning is non-linear, right? So mm-hmm. we're not expecting things to constantly improve over time. And there's going to be some back steps backwards and sudden leaps where, and within one practice session there's a huge gain um so it's not going to be kind of this smooth transition we always we tend to expect with things
1: yeah and you, the mm. there's always a danger that you have a curriculum mm-hmm. um n- not saying that curricul- curriculums are excellent and very very important uh but it, curriculums are not tick lists they mm. are and um, you need to you need to understand each piece of this knowledge we need to cover it at some stage um we don't know necessarily when we need to cover it. And I'm not going to go into the debate on objectives, lesson objectives, because I think that's, again, uh, goal setting is, has advantages and disadvantages. And mm-hmm. I, I sense that probably it is part of the approach that we need to talk about, but I, I want to sort of move on and think again, more about the practicals. I, I, as I said, at the start, I'm, I don't want to go too much into the science of it. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, only, only because um, there is a lot of science and technical language, um, and it has obviously has its place. But I want to just think that if I'm a coach now, and I'm thinking about helping an individual improve. Now, mm-hmm. uh, let's take, say, place kicking or uh, field goals for mm-hmm. our Canadian US
0: uh, <laughs>
1: listeners. Um, traditionally, we we Probably in in previous times may have gotten to warm up with some short kicks, uh, not very far away from the post, get some success, uh, maybe check on some technical details, and then gradually put them under pressure, uh, maybe with some form of competition to kick from various points on the pitch. So that might be a traditional approach. What changes?
0: Yeah, so I think uh, that example. The first place to start is you know the back to that point. I kind of mentioned earlier, place kicking is, you know, we call it, it's a self-paced activity. You get to decide when you start the action. Um, It's not a reactive skill. There's really no, I know in rugby, there's a defender, but they hardly ever play a factor, right? right? Football, they're the same, but um, so it's, so it's a relatively low variability thing Uh, that doesn't mean it's no variability because, you know, you're kicking from different angles, different distances, weather conditions, and so on. But so it's not going to require a ton of variation to really to really make it effective is kind of the, the point I would make to start. But I think the idea is the, um, you know, the thing that we you mentioned, you know, checking on the technique, okay? I think the the kind of the move away from the idea that there is a proper technique <laughs> is kind of the one difference. Um, and then probably just adding... So the the traditional way of of, of uh I, I like to say with is we tr- we train adjustability. So we train here's how you kick under this ideal condition uh close to the goal, nice angle. Then we t- teach you how to adjust that basic kicking technique for different longer uh distances, sharper angles, bad weather, pressure, whatever. Mm. Um whereas uh, the ecological approach, we, I like to think of it as adaptability. We're going to teach you right from the start that to be just used to kicking from different angles and different variations. So but probably more variability from the start um, is one of uh, the biggest difference I would see, right? Um, so starting off by switching angles a lot and and distances a lot um, earlier on in training than you would typically do, I think is the, the biggest difference for that skill.
1: So in, instead of someone becoming good at uh, one angle over five or six, they would be moving between five or six different angles. So the same number of kicks, just different different angles. Yeah. So time. learning,
0: yeah, kind of. Like, so you're learning the, you know, the back to the perception action coupling. You're learning to couple the information you're getting visually about the distance and the angle to yeah. the to the movement required to produce, you know, to get the ball to the, that location.
1: So, I mean, coaches listening in will be saying, well, this this, is maybe not much different from what I'm doing. And I, my sense is that you're not saying that this is a completely new way to coach. It is, let's do more of this type of coaching because it's more effective.
0: Yeah, I think so. And I think uh, one of the things I've been trying to emphasize lately is it's not so much about the methods themselves, like that there's radically different methods. Some cases there are, but... Um, a lot of it is using the same things in a different way, right? Um, and you know, and then as a coach, right, so when you we're talking about technique, you know, the traditional view is a lot of times, okay, there's a particular form of place kicking that we wanna teach. So you do this with your plant foot and you do this and then that, you do this many steps. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if the athlete does anything different, you kind of step in and correct them. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the, in the ecological approach, we want to kind of avoid correcting things that aren't re- unless there's some really important functional re- reason. Um, just letting maybe a different number of steps will work for this kicker and that, and that one. Um, you know, different kind of plant angle, open versus closed. You know, I, I, I don't know. Kind of. Um, so allowing for more variation, I guess. <coughs> Uh, but but so, a lot of, like your, your point is, well, a lot of times the methods will look very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just kind of where they came from and where they're headed is, is sometimes a lot different.
1: Yeah, and I think that's important um, in terms of, as you said, you, your, your approach uh, might need to change, though your, your practice may look sort of similar uh, at, at the time. So one of the things I just want to pick up on is you're talking about the functional situation there. So there are still, there is some science which may inform the technique,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, which still still holds. It's not as if someone's going to suddenly discover, or create a new technique which is uh, goes against the science. There is some science there. So you do have to, you know, your foot has to accelerate through the ball. There's no way that you can slow your foot into the ball so you might be looking for that, but you wouldn't necessarily be saying. Uh, and the only way to do that is to take this number of steps and put your plant foot there. You would be looking for something which will uh, create that impact.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think, and I think that's really the really important role of the coach. You know, um, you know, there, there's certain key, you know, I, sometimes they're invariants. You know, things that are con- consistent across good kicks. Um, uh, there are, you know, the, accepting the fact that there's not one technique does not mean there's not common features. Um, it's just, there's different, a lot of more different ways to do it. Um, you know, and the common one, like, like you described, I think that's a really great example. Like in baseball, a, a common, across a lot of sports, you know, athletes to get a lot of power, you need to keep the kinetic chain. You need like, you need to effectively transfer the force. Um, for example, in baseball, pitching from your lower body to your upper body. And, you know, in the baseball pitcher, when you separate your arm way away from your body, you're breaking that kinetic link, which both increases the chance of injury and and is taking away some of the potential uh, velocity you could generate. So recognizing that that's functionally, that's not a good thing versus saying, you know, they did three steps where we always coach two steps, right? We do it really the... We've always done it that way. I hate that you know I hate that, that explanation. I don't, don't don't like that at all. Why, why is that important? Um, and um, you know I, I, one example I had one time I was working with a basketball team, and they were um, they were trying they had a, a player that they drafted very highly um, from college, and they were, they were working with them to change their shot. The way they were shooting their, their technique. And so my first question was, Why? <laughs> Wasn't he good in college? <laughs> he must have been a pretty good shooter. You dropped, Well, and I, after a long back and forth, they were like, Well, when he gets tired in, in the fourth quarter at the end of the game, he starts to drift with the way he's shooting. He misses more. I'm like, ha, we have a functional issue. And then my next question is, when did when do you let him work on this? Oh, at the start of practice, <laughs> not when he's actually tired. So 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 I, I think really you know, and a lot of what I'm, you know, I'm trying to challenge. You know, what, how you think about what the purpose of, 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 you know, the instructions you're giving. You know, what, why are you saying, plant your foot this way, or, or do this many steps? What's the functional purpose of it?
1: And it seems to me, uh, it's screaming out at me now. Is good coaching really is to know the key functional points which have to hold. You, they're mm-hmm. non-negotiable, and then the. Um, allowing the player to discover ways to work within those functional constraints. Is that the right way to say it? Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, definitely. So there's, you know, the, there's, you know, three types of constraints. We talk about the individual constraints. So all the kickers are going to have different heights and different flexibility and strength. Uh, The task constraints, which is, uh, you know, kicking from differences, distances, angles, and then the environment, right? You're going to be different surfaces, different wind conditions, and, and yeah, I, the one of the things that you, know, you talked about pressure, the kind of the old way of thinking about it is, you know, the phrase is sometimes you're a trust in your training and control the controllables. Um, to me, that's what that's saying is, I'm going to do what I learned in the, under these practice conditions, no matter what the game conditions are. I'm going to force a square peg into a round hole of doing this technique into a gale force wind <laughs> and because I'm going to trust in my training versus... Being adaptable to the to environment the environment you're in and, and um, you know taking the pressure and anxiety you feel and, and using it um, instead of trying to you know resist and, and, and stick with what you did it, being more adaptable and reactive to your environment I think is part of it
1: yeah I think a question for another time is how long before a player feels confident to be adaptable um, mm-hmm. and um, until that moment I suppose they do have to. Have to go back to what they've they feel comfortable mm-hmm. with but perhaps um we might start with them just working on their adaptability before we try and uh maybe nail down some techniques so just really the, the last the last one i want to look at i mean obviously we could go on for a very long time is just to think again about different the different approach you might expect um using the ecological dynamical approach uh when we might have some attack versus defense. So really the, the things where you look at um, a session and think, all right, you've completely missed a trick here.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess, you know, the, the traditional approach would be, you know, to try to teach the players to run the play. Right. So um you know, and you know, maybe on a whiteboard, you draw, okay, when, you missed this. When this happens, you should all do that, <laughs> right? You should have run here. You should have done a long pass. Um, so you're really uh, giving them solution in, in and, a, a, you know, a play versus, um, okay, they're, they're missing, um, you know, opportunities for, you know, going wide or, or in mm-hmm. soccer passing long or something like that. Um Let's create a a practice situation that um, you know gives them the opportunities to experience those more. It kind of amplifies those situations, and kind of pushes them to to pick up those those opportunities for action, those affordances, mm-hmm. rather than telling you you should do this when this happens. Let's create practice situations where you're actually going to learn to to recognize those situations yourself and and act on them. Is kind of the the. Uh, the difference in approach we i think we'd see
1: now i sense that the danger there is that um, you you give them that variability but they rarely have any success um how, how do you mitigate for that situation because obviously eventually they need to have some success at something uh, otherwise mm. they're going to lose motivation and confidence in what they're doing
0: yeah, I think that's where, you know, these, this idea of constraints and, you know, things like small sided games and you, uh, the problem is, you know, as you say that in the normal game, the opportunities you get to experience that are, are few and far between, you know, you're not going to get a lot of feedback on whether you, you know, it worked or not. So by doing a small sided game, you can create more, um, you know, opportunities uh, for passing or, or or you, you also, another thing that a lot of coaches do is you add kind of uh, rule constraints, right? So Mm -hmm. um, you're not allowed to shoot until you do this many passes or you're not, you know, where we, you, uh, you, you, this kind of goal gets two points versus that kind of goal, Mm -hmm. one point. So kind of creating a, a practice situation where they're getting more opportunities to try that. And so they're, they're more likely to get some kind of Uh, feedback about how it's working and and some success rather than if it's only happening once a a half or something, you know, Mm that you're right. It's very hard to develop that.
1: So we're going to try and create situations where they've got lots of chances to practice Mm -hmm. in in certain situations. And you do that by creating uh, constraints and rules, rules in the game. Um, But overall, um, I suppose my question would be, and just to finish off with, if you want to coach basketball, why don't we just play basketball?
0: Yeah, so why don't we just play? Again, so let me, I can give you an example I was talking about. This is was in soccer, but it's the same thing um, in, in basketball. You know, in the actual game itself, right, um, you're not getting, as I said, the opportunities for some of these These to learn these things and pick up these affordances are going to become few and far between, right? For the example I was talking with someone a couple of days ago was moving without the ball, right? Um, Moving without the ball in both basketball and soccer is incredibly important, but Mm. it only happens in like these brief moments where there's something going on. The rest of the time, you're kind of just jogging around. So what the coach I was working with, we talked about doing was adding this rule where players had to mark, the defenders had to stay with the person the whole time. <laughs> One of the defenders. So the, the the offensive player actually had huge opportunity. They had to force themselves to get away from this while the play was unfolding. So the issue is in, in the game, the big difference is that you're kind of amplifying these particular things you want players to work on by adding constraints that aren't in the game. Um, you know, um, you know, I, in baseball, I add, you know, Hitting from hitting with a weighted bat that you would never use, or throwing up uphill on the mound, like so, um, creating these different opportunities, and then obviously the the, the coach kind of coming in and, and, and altering the constraints or, or or giving kind of verbal cues um, to kind of get the pattern the way they want it. Versus, and obviously you we going right back to where we started. You're looking for more learning. You know, are they? Are they? Oh, they totally messed up that play, but they—they they tried. They—they they, they were trying to take that affordance. I want them to take. Whereas in the game, <laughs> you obviously want performance, and so it's a kind of a difficult.
1: So just yeah. sorry, just to pick up on something you've just said there. So I I, I love the idea of amplifying mm-hmm. uh, the situation. Um. Now, in perception-action coupling, you are trying to uh, your perception of your action is based on the the environment that's around you. Now, if you're using an oversized bat, uh, a different shaped ball, um, a different uh, pitch size in order to amplify, how mm-hmm. is that affecting your perception uh, and action coupling? Because you're using things that you wouldn't necessarily then see uh, or act upon in a game because the ball's different, uh, the bat's different uh the size of the pitch is different, the numbers on the pitch are different.
0: Yeah, I think the 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 key is you're you're keeping kind of the basic information the same. So the the, the information for whether to decide to pass or not is the spacing, the the how fast the spacing between other players is closing and their relative mm-hmm. positions, which you're right it's going to be different than in a real game, but the basic information is is still the same. You know, hitting a ball kicking a ball um, you know, hitting a baseball, it still have to pick up how fast. It's expanding, no matter whether it starts out as a bigger ball or a smaller mm. ball. So kind of the, the perceptual information, the basic information is the same. Um, and it also kind of part of a, what we say, sometimes we say is learning to pro, learning to problem solve, right? You're learning to adjust your movements based on information, even if it might not be the exact same as in the game, that just that kind of uh, learning is useful. Learning to adapt and adjust, um, even if it's, it might be a little bit different than what you actually see in the game. Yeah, at least it's, actually, at least it's always this information and action together. Yeah, right, right, yeah. Um, part of the, sorry. <laughs> no, no, I was going to say yeah. that.
1: Um, I suppose the key word there is um, little different, or the two keywords are little different. How how different do you make it before mm-hmm. you start to lose? the actual, um, I mean, you could end up playing, um, you could um, end up playing a game of baseball to coach basketball. Well, that would obviously not uh, be the yeah. same. So that would obviously be a huge difference, though they're both sports and they both have a ball and you're having to uh, interact with the ball and players around you. So the the trick for the, or the the, what the coach has got to do is got to know how far they can, expand or yeah. amplify before they lose the sense exactly. of the game
0: yeah and and then yeah going back to the one we like to always pick on the cones right the cone mm. there's the difference there is enormous right the uh, mm. the cone is on the ground you're making the athlete look down at the ground yeah. which you really don't want it the cone is stationary there's no inherent information from a cone that makes you go left or right. Yeah. Why? There's no reason you should choose one of those. You should just run right over it, right? It's not moving. <laughs> um, versus an opponent is going to give you, you know, and you're going to pick up information from them that they're, they're leaning right or, or, or whatever. They're shading you right. And, um, so they're, they're, you're right. It is kind of this, um, I mean, in the term, sometimes we use representative design, like keeping mm-hmm. the key features that need to be there. It doesn't mean it has to be exactly the same as the game, but we want to kind of keep these these key features there.
1: Yeah. Well, Rob, yeah. that's been brilliant. I mean, obviously, there is plenty more. Uh, you don't cover the whole of a, a huge <laughs> body of work within uh, just an hour. But thank you very much, first of all, for the, the, the clarity, I think, is very important because there is a lot of language around here which can... Mm-hmm. Um, make coaches find it difficult but that's been very clear lots of things which have come out to me things like amplifying uh the situation keeping it um keeping the action same and the perception very very close together not trying to split them decouple i think is what you yes. said yeah. splitting them splitting I, them apart.
0: coupled is my uh my yeah. closing saying in my podcast so yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. So that's been brilliant. Thank you very much for your time and um if people want to uh, delve into your world a little bit more where have they got to go.
0: So the, the easiest place to is to go perceptionaction.com. Um that's kind of a has all my uh, podcast information. If you're doing you're a podcast person already, you can just search perception action podcast and whatever you're using to listen, you'll, you'll find it. But that website I created has all that information. Um, I've also tried to create some kind of resources. So if, if you want to learn, like, for example, about the constraints that approach, I've created a page that where I try to describe the basics and I link to all the articles and books and, and, and studies that have looked at it. Um, so And then the newest thing I'm doing is I'm doing more YouTube. So I'm reviewing kind of papers on um, that I've looked at. Uh, research studies uh on these kind of topics uh that you can find. So that the easiest place is perceptionaction.com will take you to spring you off to all those directions.
1: Brilliant. And I'll yeah. put the link in the blurb afterwards. So from a coach who is uh, just discovering this for the first time, I uh, I can't think how many podcasts you've done. It's uh, there's quite a few. So which one would you go to first? Where, what would be your um, your entry point?
0: Um I think a lot of you know the I did a three part series on constraints led approach I think a lot of people like to start in there um uh there's a, you know basic w- ones on Gibson if you kind of just m- want more of the theory so if you, more, if you want more kind of the practical things there's the constraints led approach and differential learning ones um which you can kind of uh, I linked in those pages I mentioned are are kind of the places I think they seem to be where a lot of people like to start and then you can run <laughs> off from there, um, into the more of a theory and things like that.
1: Great. Well, Rob, thank you very much again for your time. Uh, for me, of course, I'm, I love doing these things because I'm learning a lot. Uh, as I go yeah. along and uh, of course it then leaves me to go out and completely be confused about where I'm trying to go, but I think I've got a, I've got a good <laughs> a good sense of direction. So that's brilliant. So uh, thank you everyone for listening. You've been listening to the rugby coach weekly podcast. If you want to find out more information or uh, find out more about Rob's uh, podcasts and work, then um, the link will be underneath the podcast which is be on rugbycoachweekly.com in the podcast section or on all good podcast hosting sites. So, thank you for listening and I look forward to speaking to you all very soon.
0: Thanks for listening to Rugby Coach Weekly podcast. If you want to hear more podcasts, head over to rugbycoachweekly.net and click on the blogs tab to catch up on any episodes you missed. We look forward to speaking to you again soon with more insights from coaches and experts
1: from the world of rugby, sport and learning.